The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. You know, I left town for a week. We had a little uh, getaway, and uh, uh, all of a sudden I find out you guys canceled church on me. What is that about? I mean... <laughs> 35 years. We don't do that. The lights went out. Church had an electric, Chase had an electrifying sermon last week. So uh, I guess it brought the house down literally. Uh, we're going to call this Cricket Bible Church today. Uh, Bev is over here gagging. I told her uh, last hour, I looked down, got ready to take a sip of water. I had cricket infused water last hour. <laughs> kind of doing, uh, you know, circles, little laps up there, trying to help for the cricket Olympic team. And uh, I did throw that away, clean that cup out, and it's fresh. And uh, she started gagging up here when I tell her the story. So she said, it smells pretty bad in here, does it? Uh, it wasn't me, babe. I wore deodorant and aftershave. So, um, so welcome to Cricket Bible Church. If you're a guest today, uh, there is a visitor center out there, but you might want to get out of the building as quickly as possible because of that. Uh, we are doing a celebration after the service. In fact, we're going to end uh, a little... Uh, ahead of time because we want to celebrate what Christ is doing in our body. Uh, We have 29 or 30 people getting baptized today. It's a celebration of his goodness. So some of those folks have come to Christ in recent years. Some have known Christ for a number of years and now they're celebrating. If you or one of your family members are getting baptized following service, would you stand? So if you're being baptized or maybe your kids are away and you're the mom and dad, would you do that? So a number of folks over here, here over here, back over here. There we go. Amen. Thank you, guys. Exciting times. I'm going to tell you, it's one of the greatest things we do at TBC, and you're going to hear the testimony of uh, many of what God and what Jesus means to them. So I left town. The lights go out. My football coach gets fired. Uh, So I'm applying for a job in Baton Rouge right now. And if that doesn't work out, there's probably one available in Austin pretty soon, so I can do that as well. Yeah. Who have I not insulted yet? Come on out. Let's go for it. Bring it on. Let's go. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. If you write in your Bibles, underline that first section of verse 2. Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions, questions that have an answer that's pretty obvious. But he asks those rhetorical questions because he really wants the answer to this one question. The only thing, only thing I want to find out from you, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How were you saved? How were you justified? Was it by doing works of the law? How did you receive the Spirit? Or by hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he, that is the Father, then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Father, we have worshiped together. We have laughed together. We have uh, come into your presence together. Now, as we look at the word for a few minutes, would you teach us together and then give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are willing to be doers of the word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Nobody likes to be deceived. I don't like to be deceived. You don't like to be deceived. Nobody likes to be deceived, but the Galatians were being deceived. 
Some of you may remember this story that I've used before about deception. Um, Brian invited his mother over for dinner. During the course of the meal, Brian's mother couldn't help but notice how beautiful Brian's roommate Jennifer was. Brian had been telling his mom that he had a new roommate and they were in a platonic relationship. And as she watched over the course of the evening and watched the way they talked to one another and the way they touched one another, she decided that her son was deceiving her and not speaking the truth. Reading his mom's thoughts, Brian said, Mom, I know what you were thinking, but I assure you, Jennifer and I are just roommates. About three weeks later, Jennifer turned to Brian and said, you know, ever since your mom came, I had this beautiful silver gravy ladle that my mom gave to me and I can't find it anywhere. Do you think she took it? And Brian said, absolutely not, but I'll send her an email and ask her. Maybe she did accidentally. So uh, he sent her an email and said, dear mom, I'm not saying you did take the gravy ladle from the house. I'm not saying you didn't take the gravy ladle from the house. But the fact remains, ever since you came to visit us, the gravy ladle has been missing. Love, your son, Brian. About two hours later, she, received, she sent an email to her son. He received it and said, dear son, I'm not saying you do sleep with Jennifer. I'm not saying you don't sleep with Jennifer. But the fact remains, if Jennifer was sleeping in her own bed, she'd have found the gravy ladle within the last three weeks. <laughs> Never try to deceive mama is the name of that game, guys. But even more serious than that, there were some false teachers coming on the heels of Paul and saying, Jesus isn't enough. True saving faith, true justification, which means to be declared innocent, true righteousness comes when you trust Jesus plus a little bit more. And that little bit more was the Mosaic law. And Paul said, no, it's by grace, it's by grace, it's by grace, it's by grace. You're saved, your sins are forgiven, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you that is placed within you, and you are pleasing to the Father for the rest of your life. That's what Paul's saying in the book of Galatians. But these false teachers are coming and they say, no. True saving faith is Christ plus. And these false teachers were Judaizers. That is, they came out of Judaism or, or, or they, came, they were Jews coming out of Judaism. And all their life they've been taught, you have to keep the Mosaic law. You have to observe the Sabbath. You have to be circumcised. It's a sign of the covenant. Your boys get circumcised on the eighth day to show that you're a covenant-keeping family. You have to obey the Sabbath and all the rules that go along with that. You have to follow the dietary restrictions and rules that are there. You have to do all those things. So true saving faith, these false teachers are coming on the heels of Paul and they're saying, you have to have Christ plus something else. And if you look in your Bibles at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul calls this a different gospel. He says, how can you be deceived by this different gospel? So they're coming in and they're teaching something that is strangely different from what Paul has taught. This has created division within the body of Christ. Chase was with you last week. Well, you weren't here last week, so it, it, the lights went out and you left. So, uh, but what the text was last week... Peter and Paul have a confrontation. Peter is now moving away from the Gentiles because these teachers are saying you can't associate with them if they don't keep the law. Paul confronts Peter and says, you're wrong, Peter, and now takes us to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, what Paul's going to say is, I want to remind you of how you came to faith. And then I want to remind you how other people came to faith. And that's going to be the first of six arguments that Paul is going to use in Galatians 3 and 4 to show what true saving faith is all about. You ready? Okay, here's what we're going to do. You ready? Yes, sir. Okay, let's do it. So he's going to say, I've got one question for you. It's in verse 2. This is one thing I long to know, the one thing I want to know. And he's going to say, I want to argue personally. 
I want to ask you a question. The question is, how were you saved? So I ask you the same question Paul was asking the Galatians. How were you saved? Were you saved by doing good things? Were you saved by good works? Were you saved by getting baptized? Were you saved by joining a church? Were you saved by tithing? Were you saved by working in the nursery? Were you saved by being a good person? Yeah, I've got folks that come to me and say, you know, Pastor Gary, I'll I'll tell them, tell me your story. And they say, well, I had a godly mama. She, she, me and my mama could cook a biscuit like nobody could cook a biscuit. She was a godly woman. She was on her knees all the time praying for us and said, that's great, but tell me about you. I had a godly mama. I don't want to ask you. I'm happy you had a godly mama. Tell me about you. I'll ask a dude, tell me about your faith. Well, I had a godly grandpa. Man, my grandpa, my grandpa could shoot. He could hunt. He could hit the golf ball. He could do, my grandpa was everything to me and he was a godly man. Great. I'm glad you had a godly grandpa. So did I. I had a godly mama, godly grandpa. But what about you? And that's what Paul's saying. How'd you get into this? Did you do something to get in? Or was this a gift from God? Did, did, did you keep the law to get in? Was it, was it by doing all these things? Or was it truly a gift you received? So that's where we're headed. That's what Paul's going to look at. So in verse 1, you look at the tone of this. He says in verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's, a, it's who's charmed you, who's deceived you. That's where I get the concept of deception. He says, but your eyes have publicly, have been, to your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. He said, I painted a picture for you of the crucifixion of Christ. We've seen that done. You watch The Passion of Christ, you read books, you watch movies. We've seen Christ portrayed to us. It's a portrait. But he says, how can you be so foolish? Then you drop down to verse three. Are you so foolish? So twice he asked him the question. It's like a father correcting a son. It's like a parent correcting his children. I mean, that's the tone of this. When I was a young man, when I was a teenager, sometimes my dad would say, son, are you foolish? And I wouldn't say, yeah, dad, I'm foolish. No, I never said that. I'd be picking myself up off the floor. And, uh, but are you foolish? And usually it's when I was fighting with one of my sisters or going out with one of my friends doing stuff I shouldn't do. Or are you just foolish? That's the tone of this. It's a father to a son. How could you be so foolish? How, how can that happen? Are you, are you foolish? If you've begun by the Spirit, you're going to now perfect yourself in the flesh. And, and so it's like a father with a son. So he has several rhetorical questions so he can get to the one question he once answered. That one question is, how did you get into this? How are you saved? What's true saving faith look like? And so Paul asked that question. I asked that question, how foolish are you? Who loaded that thing up? <laughs> Somebody sent me that picture this week. I, I had just, I, or last week when I put this together and I just typed out, how can you be so foolish? And I popped on my email, popped that up. And I thought, that's what foolishness looks like. Something like that, okay? Uh, but, but Paul said, how did you come into this? How did it happen? Uh, w- what is the true gospel? That's the one thing I want to know from you. Because if we know what the true gospel is, then we know how we came into this and we know how we live it. So he's, a mama, he's like a mom or dad asking this question. How can you be so foolish? Foolish about what? Well, you've seen Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. And where did Paul get that information from? Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when I last preached, he met with Peter for about 14 days, 15 days. After he was saved, he went and met with Peter. And I told you that's the, the, the number one conversation I would love to hear in all of human history is the conversation of Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus following his resurrection. I would love to hear that conversation, Jesus and those two guys. The second conversation, if I could eavesdrop on any conversation in all of human history, would be the conversation when Paul met Peter for the first time and Peter began to tell him about Jesus. How do you think Paul knew all this stuff? Well, he sat with Peter. 
I guarantee you they didn't talk about the Jerusalem Giants in the soccer game that day. But they talked about the Savior. And, and he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. And then he asked these questions. Do you receive the law? Or do you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing? Well, obviously by hearing. Uh, uh, did you begin by the Spirit and now being perfected by the flesh? Of course you can't be perfected by the flesh. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed in vain? Of course not. Uh, d- does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, obviously it's hearing with faith. The law cannot in any way save us at any point in time. Doing more, seeking more uh, is not going to be that which allows us. That's not true saving faith. The, the way that Paul asked that question in verse 2 is quite interesting. He says, uh, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Now, if you were going to ask somebody if they know Christ, that's probably not the question you would ask them. We don't typically ask that question. I mean, I wouldn't walk up to you and say, hey, how did you receive the Spirit? But Paul knew that was important. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. In our day and age, uh, if you travel with me or you're around me much or we do something together, probably Gary's going to ask you, hey, would you share with me your story? And folks have gotten to know me and they know what he really means is, would you share your life story, including your spiritual journey? Tell me about that. There are other ways you can ask that question. If you took evangelism explosion back in the 80s and 90s, you guys weren't even born in the 80s and 90s, but if you did that in the 80s and 90s, you were taught to ask the question, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? James Kennedy evangelism explosion. It's a good question. It's a good question. Honestly, when I would ask people that question, they usually begin with, I think, I hope, or maybe. I think, I hope, or maybe. That tells me either they don't know Christ or they have no assurance of their salvation. Because in 1 John chapter 5, it says, I've written these things in order that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't have to take my last breath wondering if I'm going to spend eternity in the presence of, of God. It says, when I trust Christ as my Savior, I have that assurance forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen, right? And so he says, how'd you get into this thing? I mean, really, is it something you did to get into here? And so we ask people, here's the thing, never to ask a person in America, are you a Christian? I mean, really, if you want to share your, you want the opportunity to share Christ with somebody, the opportunity to talk to somebody, if I were to ask this entire audience, if I were to ask Temple, Texas, are you a Christian? The vast majority of people would say, yes, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Shinto, so obviously I'm a Christian. I'm born in America, that makes me a Christian, right? No more than it makes you a car if you happen to be born in a garage. Okay. I mean, same difference. So the question is, when did you realize you were hopelessly, helplessly lost and placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone for eternal life and forgiveness? When did that happen? That's the question. That's the question. And, and that's what Paul's asking. How did you receive the Spirit? Did you do something? No, it's all Grace. It's all about him. It's not about our performance. It's about his provision. Let me repeat that. It's not about your performance. It's about his provision. So if you think you have to do something, that's not the gospel. See, in the first century, they're saying it's Christ plus, and it's Christ plus the Mosaic law. 
keeping the Sabbath, the dietary laws, et cetera, et cetera. And Paul's argument here, no, it's not that. It's, it's not that. In fact, you receive the Spirit. How do you receive the Spirit? First Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one Spirit we're baptized into one body, where the Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all made to drink of the same Spirit. That the point of your salvation, a 200-pound Jewish Galilean did, jump down, did not jump down your throat. Instead, the Holy Spirit of God indwelt you. That's what happened. You were indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. Your body became what Paul calls a temple of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is alive in you, and we should say glory, hallelujah, amen, right? I mean, you possess the Spirit of God. And Paul's question is a rhetorical question. And he sets up really a series of contrasts. Uh, let me get to the contrast, and I'll come back to that quote. He sets up a series of contrasts, beginning in chapter 2, verse 16. The message you would have heard from Chase last week, if the lights had not gone out, included that passage. It says, nevertheless, knowing a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we're not justified by works of the law, we're justified through faith in Christ. The passage you're looking at now. How, did you, how do you know that, that of what true saving faith is? You receive the Spirit by works of the law? No, but by believing what you heard. Then if you look at chapter 3, verse 3, have you begun by the Spirit? Can you be perfected by the flesh? And the answer is no, no, no. So if you look at the contrast here, you're, you're not justified by the works of the law. You don't receive the Spirit by the works of the law. You're not perfected by your own flesh. Instead, it's through faith in Christ, believing what you hear, continuing the Spirit right out of the book of Galatians. It's nothing you do. It's all about Him. Amen? Not about my performance. It's about his provision. Early on in life, I was taught about having a quiet time, being in the Word and praying, and so I was taught about the spiritual discipline. So I became spiritually disciplined. I did all this stuff. And then I looked up one day and realized I was living a performance type of spirituality. I wanted God's approval. And here's the great news. He already approves of you. He, he, he loves you. He will never desert you. He'll never leave nor desert you. His love can, for you is an everlasting love. It never goes away. We sing about that. We shout glory about that. You live an exchange life. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you, Galatians 2.20. And because of all these things, what we recognize is he has done all this for us. It's nothing that we have done. I'll back up to this quote. It's all about his grace. All through human history, as far back as recorded time and doubtless before, kings, princes, tribal chiefs, presidents, dictators have sent their subjects into battle to die for him. Only once in human history has a king not sent a subject to die for him, but instead he died for his subjects. Wow. Wow. He didn't say, you go fight for me. He says, I'll go die for you instead. That's amazing. We, we sang the song Amazing Grace. We're going to sing another song about His grace at the end of the service. And it's because of this right here and what He's done. He didn't send you to die. He died for you and your place as your king. Chuck Colson says in this book with Harold Fickett, this is the king who introduces the kingdom that cannot be shaken because this king reigns forever. Now the author puts it this way. The grace of God is outrageous. By normal human reason, it doesn't make any sense. We should have to do something to get salvation. There's no adequate reason for God to love us that much or be that generous, but he is. God is supernaturally generous. Not only does God's grace save us from sin, but he transforms us into his children. So in verses 1 through 5, he's asking rhetorical questions. And he's saying, tell me, how'd you get into this? By your works? By your good deeds? No. 
because the Savior, the Savior has done this for you. The Savior has accomplished this for you. The Savior has made this happen. And so he says, the first argument is about personal stuff. The second argument, and by the way, that grace, that amazing grace is a, is, is a true gift. You remember what Mark Twain said? I've used it many times before. Mark Twain said, heaven goes by grace. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would get in because your dog is nicer than you are. And he's right. I mean, we had this little schnauzer one for years, 14 years, 15 years, something like that. And, and, and Cuddles was her name. I was the big dude walking a little bitty dog around the streets. I mean, but we could leave for, for three days and old Cuddles would be at the door. Man, her little nub of a tail, she almost cut off deals, would be going a thousand miles an hour. We hit that door, man, she'd be barking, jumping up on you. I mean, she was so excited to see us. We could leave for three minutes and forget something in the house, drive back in, put the garage door down, pop it back up, come in. You know what happened when Cuddles heard that car come in? She's back at that door. We're just going three minutes now. Man, that tail's going a thousand miles an hour. She'd jump on it. She's so glad to see you after three minutes. I'm sure her dog mind, she's thinking, I wish you guys would leave and not come back for a while. But, but she was just nice. There are a lot of people that aren't Nice. And he says, you know, if heaven went by merit, you'd stay out and your dog would get in because your dog is nicer than you are. And Paul says, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can earn. It's all given to you by God. At TBC, over a lot of people that foster and adopt. And I love that. I love seeing what the next generation is doing. And how many of you have either fostered, adopted, or been fostered or been adopted? Let me see your hands. You're a part of that. So raise them high. Watch this. Look around. Take a look. Dozens. I just love that. I love that. Well, if you go to adopt a kid, you don't say, hey, what are you going to bring with you? You don't say, hey, how much money do you have for this? One author writes it this way. You and I both know that an adoption is not something we earn. It's something we receive. To be adopted into family is not a feat one achieves, but a gift one accepts. The parents are the active ones. Adopted agencies don't train children to recruit parents. They seek parents to adopt children. You don't put out, you don't write in the interview, we've got some questions for Johnny before we adopt him. We want to know if he has a house to live in that we can move into. We want to know if he has money for tuition. We want to know if he's got to ride to school every morning, if he knows how to cook, if he knows how to clean. Because we want Johnny to come to our house, but you wouldn't do that. Would you come and you say, Johnny has nothing, but we have love to give him. So you've been adopted by the Father. You know what you come with? Nothing. Empty hands saying, would you take me in the family? And he says, yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Look at the cross. The Savior's portrayed there. When you come to him by faith, by faith, you're part of the family. So Paul says, I want to ask you a question. That's a personal question. How were you saved? Did you do anything? No. So then he says, in the second argument, beginning in the next verse, he says, how are others saved? If you look at the next verse, it says, Abraham did works, and it was credit to him as righteous. Is that what your Bible says? Abraham was baptized, and therefore he was righteous. Abraham did what? Believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Righteousness was credited to his account. It was paid in full. He was given everything he would need for spiritual living and life. And it's not because Abraham did anything. 
It's because he believed. Now, the Judaizers are coming in and they're trying to deceive people and they're saying, hey, it's faith plus, faith plus. And one of the big things was circumcision because every good Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day. It symbolized the faith of the parents who's part of the covenantal family. That's why Jesus himself was, was circumcised on the eighth day. You go to Luke and you see it there. You had two old folks in the temple, Simeon and Anna, and they were there waiting for the Messiah to come. Jesus comes in, his parents being good Jewish parents had him circumcised, keeping the law. So if circumcision or keeping the law saves you and Abraham is the father of Judaism and Abraham would be circumcised and that's part of getting saved, don't you think the moment he believed and it was reckoned to him as righteous, verse 6, he'd be circumcised. Well, if you were to trace this down, write down in the margin of your Bible, on your notes, Genesis 15, 6, that's where this comes from. 14 years later, 14 years later, Genesis 17, Abraham is circumcised. I said, wait a minute, Gary, that doesn't add up. If salvation is faith plus, you name it, baptism, circumcision, speaking in tongues, joining a church, tithing, whatever it is, then it needs to be done right then. You're right. And that's Paul's argument. In fact, look what he says in the next verse. Therefore, to be sure, it's those who are faith who are sons of Abraham, verse 9, those who are faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. The true Jew, the true believer, is the one who places their faith in Christ, not some work of the law. Even a good work. It's faith in Christ alone prime example, number one example, Father Abraham, the great patriarch, the first Jew. And Paul says, let me tell you, others were saved. The example of Abraham. And he says, as many as are of the works of the law, verse 10, are under curse. You see what the law does, a curse. Look at verse 11. No one is justified by the law before God is evident. Let me tell you, let me tell you how we know that. If we were to go... Let's say after, after baptism, you're saying, Pastor Gary, you've preached three times, you've baptized folks, we want to take you and Bev to dinner, so we know Papadose is your favorite place to go, and so we're going to take you to Papadose this afternoon. I'm going to say, amen. <laughs> and you're driving, and you crest a hill in Gerald, Texas, and you're going 80 miles an hour, and 75 miles an hour is a speed zone there. So you crest that hill, and there's a real nice DPS officer pulled on, the, he's sitting on the side of the road. You crest the hill at 80 miles an hour, 75 is a speed limit. What are you going to do when you see that, that man sitting over there, that woman sitting over What are you going to do? You say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. The law is here to point out my sin. So about three weeks ago, I'm driving through Temple. I see, not me, I, I see lights, I come by, and it's one of my older godly women from TBC. I drive by slowly. I wave at her. And she goes, I'm not the law. But what does the law do? The law points out sin. That's what it does. When we were in Denver, I used to be on a board in Denver for a number of years. OMF used to be trying to inland mission. And we're there one time, I'm reading newspaper, I start cracking up laughing. There's a lady whose kids were in elementary school in the Highland Lakes area, Highland Ranch area of Denver, 
And she, people were coming through the school zone there too quickly. She called the police. They didn't send anybody. So the next morning, she decided to take the law in her own hands. She went and parked in the, in the school zone where the speed changed. And when cars came by too fast, she pulled out a blow dryer and stuck out the window. Every car started hitting their brakes as soon as they came by. Every car. Because the law points out sin. Let me explain it this way. The Apostle Paul makes it clear the law illuminates sin, but it's powerless to eliminate sin. The, the law, it's not part of its job description. The law points to righteousness, but it can't produce righteousness. The law can show what godliness is, but it can't make us godly. The law can inform us of our sin, but it can't transform the sinner. Only the gospel, only Jesus can do that. Nobody else. That's the gospel. Gospel equals good news. The good news is Christ came. He died on the cross for your sins. He was resurrected on the third day. And by placing your faith in him, you have forgiveness and eternal life. That's the gospel. Martin Luther said it this way, sin is not canceled by lawful living for no person is able to live up to the law. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. So if you're thinking along with me, you're thinking, so Gary, what about obedience? What about good works? What about serving the nursery? What about giving to the ministry? All of that flows out of a love for the Savior. Flows out of a love for the Savior. See, before, my mentality was this performance-based mentality. I've got to do, 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 do. And now it's like, you know, when you see Jesus and his grace and all that he's done, it would be foolish for me to think that I can now perfect myself by doing stuff. But now we do that stuff not to earn the approval of the one who already approves of us. But we live a life of obedience because of our love for the one who's already done it for us. Do you see the difference in motivation? Just a slight difference, but it makes all the difference in the world. Because of who he is and what he's done, we desire to worship him, serve him, give to him, honor him, and glorify him in all we do. What Paul's doing is, he says, I want you to go back and remember your salvation. I want you to go back and remember Abraham's saving faith. I want you to remember the past so you can stay grounded in the present. So if you remember the past, these false teachers, worship team, would you guys join me? If you remember what God has done in the past, then you can stay grounded in the presence. And that's what Paul's saying. Remember when you came to faith. Here's when Abraham came to faith. It had nothing to do with anybody's performance. Everything to do with God's provision. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So when you go through times of doubt, which you will, or you go through times of struggle, which you will, and you go through times of questioning, which you will, you look back at the past and you remember what God has done to stay grounded in the present. Most of you, but not all of you, were here three and a half years ago when I was diagnosed with a really bad disease. Prognosis is still real poor. 30% chance to survive two more years. That doesn't change. And if you remember, I, I'm the guy who has not had much anxiety in my life, depression in my life. It's just not something that I experienced much of. Occasional sleepless night, two nights, but nothing like what hit me then. And, and I am hit with anxiety. I can't sleep at night. I lost all kind of weight. I'm losing weight now, but I'm trying to. 
but then I just couldn't eat. Beth said, there's something wrong with you. You're not interested. You can't sleep. You can't eat. You're not interested in sex. There's something wrong with you. (laughs) And so there was. I mean, I was just struggling, just struggling. And uh, by God's grace, I wish I could tell you in a couple of weeks that went away. It took four months. And I've been asked by many of you, how did that happen, Pastor Gary? Well, let me tell you how it happened. Two things. First of all, the body of Christ. I I didn't overcome that. Jesus overcame that through you. I used the example early on. I said, you know, there's a guy whose four friends carried him on the litter and brought him to where Jesus is. They cut the hole in the roof and dropped him down. I love carrying people's litters. That's the way God's wired me. I love being a shepherd. But I don't like being on the litter. I don't like it. But I've been there for three and a half years. And one of the reasons that anxiety and that depression and all that stuff went away, because I ask you to carry me and you've been carrying me. And I don't take that lightly. You've been praying, God has been faithful, and that stuff went away. The second thing is I begin to remember the past. I begin to remember the faithfulness of God. I remember God's faithfulness and Bev and I struggled our third year here in our marriage. I've shared that story with you. We just struggled. I, I was a knucklehead and wasn't doing the things a good husband should do and loving my wife and wasn't unfaithful to her, but I just wasn't a good husband. And God picked us up and pulled us together. And for that, that was 32 years ago. And by grace, this is my best friend, my lover, the person I want to be with more anybody in life. And I remember God's faithfulness then. And then I remembered when uh, our son was diagnosed with type one diabetes in college. I mean, he's lean and mean, that shouldn't happen to him. And and it just kind of blew our circuits, and, and God was faithful. And he used that. Now he's a pediatric endocrinologist functioning with diabetic kids every day. And I remember God's faithfulness. And then I remembered we had uh, twin grandsons born. They weighed uh, three pounds and three and a half pounds, and they're in the neonatal ICU with bells and alarms gone off every day for weeks. And God was faithful. Those little guys are 10 years old now. And then I've looked out here, and I've seen you. And I've seen guys get a hunger to grow spiritually. And I look around, and I think guys having ministry at work, and guys leading people to Christ, and people whose lives are drastically changed, marriages that are reconciled, and addictions that are dropped. And I see God's faithfulness. And so, to steal a phrase from my favorite author, I, I return to joy. God brought that joy back and uh, had nothing to do with me, nothing. Had everything to do with your love and care and with God's faithfulness in the past. And so if you want to stay grounded in the present, you look at the past and Paul says, how can you foolish Galatians look at the past, see what he's done in your life, Look at the past and see what he's done in Abraham's life and not trust him fully. That's the message of Galatians. That's the message of chapter 3, verses 1 through 14.